The reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and it's found on page 1147 in the church Bibles. That's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, page 1147. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. This is the word of the Lord. And I wonder what you were feeling or thinking as that passage was read out to us just now. Um, I think it would be good to pray and ask God's help as we come to a passage like this, this morning. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word that we trust is true and is good. And so, Lord, as we come to a passage that is challenging and can be confusing, Lord, help us as we read it and as we think about what it means. Help us to see your goodness in it. Help us to be challenged and help us to change as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I remember being told that people are two to three three times more likely to be motivated not to change than to want to change. I wonder if you can relate to that at all. Often we can want to see change around us, and so we look at society and culture and the world around us, and we would love to see change. We might look at people around us, 
And if only that person at work or college or maybe even at home would change, then that would sort everything out. But what if it was us that needed changing? How would we feel then? I've heard it said that Jesus accepts us as we are, but doesn't leave us as we are. Jesus accepts us as we are, but doesn't leave us as we are. You see, the good news of Christianity, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that every single person is welcome. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever your background might be, Jesus accepts you as you are. But he doesn't leave you as you are. Because Jesus is in the business of change. Jesus is in the business of changing you, of making you more like him. To Nick, or to extend Rob's illustration from earlier, as Rob cleans his car and waxes his car so much so that he can see his face in it, so Jesus is wanting to change you so much so that he can see his face reflected in you. That is what holiness is. It's being changed Holiness is literally to be set apart from the world around us. Jesus cares about you. Jesus cares about your holiness. Jesus cares about change in your life. And so I wonder how that makes you feel this morning. We've come to the end of the opening section in 1 Corinthians, chapters 1 to 4, where, where we've read that Paul is concerned about the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church is a church where they think they're more spiritual than they actually are. And in their super spirituality, they're, they're looking for strength and wisdom, but they're looking in the wrong places. And Paul says, stop looking to the world for that. You need to look to the so-called weakness and foolishness of the gospel. That is real strength and wisdom. And so as a result, Paul says, look, you're not as mature as you think you are. You're not as spiritual as you think you are. And now as we move to the next section from chapter 5 onwards, we, we have a section where Paul deals with specific issues that are going on in the Corinthian church. Issues where the Corinthians may think that they're really spiritual and mature. And Paul wants to show them that they've got it wrong. You see, Paul wants to see in Corinth a church that is spiritually growing. A church that is seeing change. A church that is growing in holiness. And so in this passage, we see two concerns that Paul has as he longs to see change in the church. First, we see a right concern for an individual's holiness, and then we see, secondly, a right concern for the church's holiness. So first then, a right concern for an individual's, hol- individual's holiness. Paul, verse 1, writes to and address a specific issue. He says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. Paul writes to address an issue where a man is having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And the phrase that Paul uses implies that this is an ongoing relationship. It's not just a one-off thing, but a continual relationship. And Paul wants to say, look, sort it out, that's wrong. 
But Paul doesn't write just simply to address the issue, but he also wants to address the church's response to the issue, verse 2. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. There's a case of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, it's it's any activity that is outside God's plan for sexual immorality, uh, sexual activity. It's any kind of extramarital sexual sin. And Paul is horrified that this is being accepted in the church. And not just accepted, but it seems that they're proud of accepting it. It's almost they're proud of their ability to accommodate this in their church. It seems as if in their, in their kind of puffed-up spirituality, in the freedom that they found as Christians who live in the Spirit, here is a demonstration of their so-called Christian freedom and liberty a freedom in Christ to do what we want. We're free from the law. And so it's almost as if they're saying, come and look and see how progressive we are as a church. Now look, it it may be easy to, to think where we can see this happening in churches today, where we see churches thinking, well, we're just getting outdated on our Christian views on, on sex and sexuality. We need to match the the culture and and society around us. But can I just warn you, before you wander your minds there, this is actually worse, verse 1. This is something that the pagans wouldn't even entertain. This is something that the world around them, society around them, culture around them, wouldn't agree with. And that is saying something for sexually promiscuous Corinth. Paul cannot believe he's hearing that this is happening in the church. But more than that, Paul cannot believe the response of the church to it happening, that they're accepting it. That's what shocks him. And so in this passage, Paul spends more time addressing the wrong response of the church and how the church should have responded rather than the sin itself. He says, rather than being proud, you should have been grieving mourning at this happening, showing a deep anguish at sin. And so you should have looked to have dealt with the issue, verse 2. Look, we seem to be living in a, in a progressively, incre- increasingly permissive society, a culture that just wants to say yes to everything. I, I remember overhearing a, a parent saying that it's wrong of her to ever say no to their child. It would just be mean. It would be unfair. Now, look, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm certainly not an expert on parenting. I'm far from the perfect parent. But if I was to never say no to Lily, I reckon we'd be having spoonfuls of peanut butter and mini cheddars for every single meal, whilst watching Mr. Tumble on TV every day, whilst probably wearing swimming costumes and, and wellies. And look, it's not just children, is it? It extends to further areas of life. We live in a world that doesn't want to say no. If it feels good, do it. Who are you to tell me what I can and I can't do? That was true in Corinth. 
And it so seems true in the world around us today. And the worry today is that this permissive culture around us seeps into our church. We never say no. That's what happened in Corinth. It seeped into the church, and, and, and it seeped in as an almost super-spirituality. We can do anything. And Paul says, don't just say yes to everything. In fact, this isn't loving. Say no. You need to deal with it. And in fact, in our passage, four times, Paul tells the, the church in Corinth how to deal with this incidence of sin. In verse 2, verse 5, verse 7, verse 13. Have a look at verse 5 and as, as an example of that. Hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Look, I don't know how you feel as you hear that verse read. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? What's going on? Well, as we look at this verse, hopefully we'll see that that this action is not judgmental, but it's restorative. The motivation isn't vindictiveness, but it's love. So it's not harsh and unloving, but it's actually caring, both for the individual and for the church. Verse 5, Paul isn't saying, hand him over to Satan so that he's lost forever to Satan. And he's certainly not calling for any kind of physical harm. But rather, he's speaking about Satan's realm, the world. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about Satan being the spirit of this age, the spirit of the world. And so to put out of the fellowship, likely meaning to put out of the the worship gathering and communion, and therefore into Satan's realm, the world around us. And, and, and the aim is so that the sinful nature might be dealt with, might be destroyed, so that the end result is that this person is, is saved. The intention is this man's salvation. It's, it's almost as if as this man leaves, he, he, he comes to his senses. He, he realized that it's not worth it. This way of living isn't worth it. It doesn't give life. It doesn't fulfill like he'd hoped. And so sees a need to repent, to turn away from that way of life and come back to Christ. Paul is serious about sin. Paul is serious about purity. Paul is serious about holiness, that set-apartness, becoming more like Jesus Christ. And so there is a challenge here not to tolerate sin in the individual, to, to have a concern for the individual's holiness. But it's not just the individual. It's bigger than that. Paul realizes that the Christian faith isn't one to be lived in isolation. It's not an individual faith, but we are part of something. Paul's concern throughout 1 Corinthians is a corporate concern. We are part of a church. And so whilst Paul is concerned about an individual's holiness and purity and change, it's because it has a direct impact on the whole church. And so second, Paul shows us a right concern for the church's holiness, a right concern 
for the church's holiness. And he shows us that, verse 6, through an illustration. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He uses an illustration that may, um, may, people here may relate to and get. Um, maybe this one will help you. I heard in 1972, Cadbury's had to get rid of 25 million chocolate Easter eggs. That is sad news. Uh, because apparently the yeast in the cream had filled and in the cream filling had expanded. And so once the eggs had left the factory, uh, the, the yeast expanded and the eggs all cracked. The yeast had ruined the chocolate Easter eggs. Look, Paul is saying just as yeast grows and expands and spreads through the dough, so sin can spread and affect the whole church. And if nothing is done about it, the impression is given that, hey, it's all right. It doesn't matter. And so others just follow in that example. And yet... Paul doesn't just use this as a simple illustration because they would get it, just like we might get chocolate. No, it has a deeper meaning. As Paul speaks about yeast and about dough, as he mentions Jesus as the Passover lamb, the Corinthians' minds will be taken back to Exodus and the Passover and the need for the Israelites to remove the yeast from their bread before the lamb is sacrificed, a way almost of preparation And so it points forward to Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. And so Paul uses that illustration to say, look, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so because of that, sin is dealt with. Because of that, you can be washed clean. So because of that, be changed. Be different, verse 8. He says, you're no longer like the old bread of malice and wickedness, your new bread of sincerity and truth. So be different. Be changed. And Paul almost affirms that, reaffirms that in verses 9 to 12. It's interesting here, verse 9, we learn that even though in our Bibles this is our 1 Corinthians, in fact there has been an earlier letter to the church in Corinth. And in his previous letter, it seems that Paul has spoken about being different in, our sex, in their sexual behavior, being careful about who they associate, not associating with those who are sexually immoral. And yet they took it the wrong way. They thought that meant anyone who was outside the church who was sexually immoral. And Paul says, no, no, of course I didn't mean that. I mean, imagine that. You'd literally have to leave the world. There's no one you could interact with if I meant that. Verse 10. But he says, no, 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 it's inside the church. It's those, verse 11, who who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but is in fact sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or even a swindler, with such a man Do not even eat. Paul adds to the list here, adds to sexual immorality. He adds greed and swindlers, those who covet other people's belongings, but not just coveting, actually acts on that desire to have it. 
slanderer, those who verbally abuse. He adds those people who are regularly given over to drunkenness. And he says, don't associate with them. Paul is serious about sin because he is serious about holiness and change, both in the, in the individual and in the church. And look, I don't think Paul is saying that this is how you respond to every instance of sin in the church. It can't be because Paul is realistic that we are all sinful people. And so if this was the way we were to react to every instance of sin, well, we wouldn't be associating with any person here. Now, here seems to be a case of persistent and unrepentant sin, where the individual, whilst saying he believes is a follower of Jesus Christ, He persists in living in a way that is contrary to God's word, contrary to God's way of living, persistent in it, not acknowledging it's wrong, wanting to continue. And so Paul says it is right to challenge them. It is loving to challenge them for their own good, but not just for their own good, for the church's good as well. And so if they are unrepentant, if they insist on persisting in it, then it may be the right thing, the appropriate thing, the loving thing to not consider them part of the church family, not part of the fellowship of believers, to not invite them to take communion, which is what I think Paul is referring to when he talks about not even eating with them to not have them in any kind of role of leadership or or teaching or influence. Paul says in these verses, a a right judging is needed. Not a a self-righteous judgmentalism, which he condemned in the previous, previous chapter. A judgmentalism that looks down on other people that the Corinthians were guilty of. No, a right judging between right and wrong that is for the good of the individual, including ourselves, and is for the good of the church. Jesus accepts you as you are, but does not leave you as you are. Jesus is in the business of change, and that is a good thing. (laughs) It's a good thing that we should all be desiring. But as is often the case with change, that can also be a hard thing. And so I think a passage like this calls us to examine ourselves. Am I so concerned with my own change and holiness? Am I so concerned with my church's change and holiness? What sins may I be tempted to brush over, to justify, to just excuse away? Sure, yeah, I I might get angry a lot, but... God, if you had to spend time with them, you'd be getting angry. And for us as a church to examine our church, what sins as a church may we be tempted to brush over? Here's the list that Paul challenges the Corinthians over. Sexual sin. A greed of other people's belongings. How we use our words with one another idolatry of any kind. 
And so as Jesus is in the business of change, as Jesus longs to see change in us individually and as a church so he can see his face reflected in us, how might we as a church cultivate an environment where we're able to have maybe or even definitely uncomfortable conversations so that we can change, so that we can become more like Jesus Christ, so that we can show a watching world the beautiful purity and brilliance of our Savior. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much that you accept us as we are. We don't need to sort ourselves out. We don't need to come to you perfect. You accept us as you are, as we are. But thank you also that you do not leave us as we are, but you long for us to change. You long for us to become more like your son, Jesus Christ, so that we may be holy and so that we may show a watching world the beauty of a life lived for Christ. Please help us as we think through what that might mean for us individually, but also for us as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.